Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Next Left has this year highlighted political newcomers, rising stars and challengers to the status quo. But as we spoke with first-time candidates and members of city councils, legislatures, and the Congress, something stood out. All of these new political leaders had political inspirations, groundbreaking candidates and elected officials who came before them. At or near the top of the list of inspiring figures, especially for new members of Congress, was California Democrat Barbara Lee. A veteran of Shirley Chisholm's historic 1972 presidential campaign, a former state representative and state senator, Lee was elected to the U.S. House in 1998 to replace her longtime ally and friend, Ron Dellums. Lee has chaired the Congressional Black Caucus and co-chaired the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She has led platform writing processes for the Democratic Party and served as a United States representative to the United Nations. But above all, she has been the House's steadiest advocate for peace, since even before she cast the only vote against the 2001 authorization of the use of military force, which remains the excuse for unwarranted presidential war-making to this day. This week on Next Left, we talk with Barbara Lee about her remarkable journey from her own youthful activism with Black Panther food programs to mentoring the next generation of progressive leaders. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you so much for joining us on Next Left. Yeah, happy to be with you. It's a pleasure. In preparing this podcast, one of the things that really struck us was that so many of the new members of Congress cite you as a role model, a mentor. And so many of them share your deep commitment to economic and social and racial justice and to peace. Oh, yes. And first of all, let me just say, John, these new members of Congress are first they're phenomenal secondly they come to congress with an intellect and a passion and a heart and they say we're not going to wait anymore and for me i breathed a sigh of relief Uh, some of them especially congresswoman ayanna presley who is just an unbelievably brilliant uh, passionate visionary She called me, and then others picked it up, the OG. Now, for those who don't know what an OG is, (laughs) John, you want to say, you want to tell them what OG means? Well, some would say original gangster. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I wear that title as a badge of honor. (laughs) You've always been willing to push the boundaries of American politics ever since you started as a young woman working with Shirley Chisholm. Tell us about that. Shirley Chisholm, first of all, was the first African-American woman elected to Congress. Now, can you believe that? In late 60s, Shirley Chisholm from Brooklyn, first black woman. Shirley Chisholm was a good friend and a mentor. And quickly, my story about Shirley Chisholm and how I came to know her was that I was a student at Mills College. It's a woman's college, great college in Oakland, California. And I had a class in government. Now, mind you, I was a black student union president. I was a community worker with the Black Panther Party, bagging groceries, feeding hungry kids. I was on public assistance, so my children, my two young boys, were with me all of the time doing community work and studying and just trying to make it. So I had this course in government, and the professor 
wanted us to work in the campaign, a presidential primary campaign. And then, of course, that was in the day. It was Muskie, McGovern, Humphrey. And I said, no way. Flunk me. Uh, I'm not going to pass this class. The first class I ever decided to flunk, but I was very deliberate about flunking that class because these guys didn't reflect who I thought they should reflect in terms of their issues, in terms of their concern, in terms of, you know, looking out for the most vulnerable. Uh, And I was, again, on public assistance struggling, and so I knew what I was doing. But at the same time, I invited Shirley Chisholm to speak to the Black Student Union as the first African-American woman elected to Congress. Lo and behold, uh, she was running for president. And I listened to her speak. First, she spoke fluent Spanish, John. A lot of people don't know that. Secondly, she talked about immigrant rights. Now, mind you, this is 1972. Thirdly, she talked about child care and education, early childhood education. And she was against the Vietnam War. And she talked about why we needed to seek peace and how war would not lead to peace. And so she talked about all the issues I cared about. And I went up to her later and after the speech, and I said, well, you know, Congresswoman Chisholm, I have this class I'm about to flunk. And part of the requirement is to work in a campaign. But after hearing you speak, I may reconsider flunking the class. Well, she took me to task. First of all, she asked me if I was registered to vote. And, of course, I said no. I did not believe, you know, like so many young people now, that the two-party system was relevant. And so I said, no way. I'm a community worker. I'm president of Black Student Union. I'm very involved in, in all kinds of movements. And so I know how to fight for change. And I said I was a revolutionary, so I wasn't going to participate in bourgeois politics. <laughs> well, of course, she didn't like that. And she really convinced me that I needed to reconsider registering to vote and working in her campaign because, of course, she told me that she thought that you know, I needed to fight for some real systemic change, and I needed to do that through politics and the political process. So I took a deep breath, said, okay, how do I locate people who are working your campaign? And she said, my dear, I'll never forget that, my dear, I'm leaving this up to my local supporters. I don't have a national campaign. I don't have a lot of money. So uh, whoever supports me in the Bay Area, you know, that's my campaign. So I went back to my class, told her name was Dr. Frances Mullins. I said, well, you know, I'll reconsider this class now. Maybe I'll try to pass it. Who do I call and how do I begin? She said, that's up to you. That's part of the course. I said, oh, God. So I then went to uh, Sandy Gaines, who was student body president, Wilson Riles Jr., who was an activist and a student, and Sandra Swanson. And we actually organized her Northern California campaign from my class at Mills College. We took about 9% of the vote in Alameda County. I got an A in the class, and I went on to become a Shirley Chisholm delegate in Miami, Florida. And that's kind of my first entree into politics. And from then on, the rest is history. Of course, Shirley Chisholm became a close friend and a mentor, and she supported me in everything that I mounted, whether I was a staffer to another unbelievable warrior, Congressman Ron Dellums. I worked for him as an intern and then as a chief of staff. And Shirley Chisholm always, though, on the Hill, found time to talk to me, to consult with me, to advise me. And then when I ran for the California Assembly, California Senate, and Congress, she came out and helped me campaign. And I miss her tremendously. She was truly 
a shero and a, a great woman and a great role model for all. And I'm lifting up her legacy. You know, we have a Shirley Chisholm stamp now, her portraits in the Capitol. We've named post offices after her. And so we've got to remember that she was a, a trailblazer and she was a catalyst for change and she was unbought and unbossed. Those were her slogans in 1972. That's right. And they they were true. And you've always recognized that. I think it's safe to say uh, you were lucky to be in the same places with Shirley Chisholm, to travel with her, to rise with her. Your activism early on was not a typical route to Congress, being engaged with the Black Panthers. And um, did you travel to Cuba? I started going to Cuba when I worked for Ron Dellums because normalizing relations with Cuba, country 90, Afro-Hispanic country 90 miles away, was just something in my DNA and something Ron supported and wanted done. We never need to blockade a country instead of engaging in diplomatic action and negotiations. From the beginning of your time in politics, uh, you took very bold stands, very passionate positions. You did find people, often the very rare people in politics, who were willing to do the same. Ron Dellums is an incredibly good example of that. He was the congressman from the district you now represent. But he was also, in many ways, the congressman from the peace movement and from the people's movements out of the country. When he got elected to Congress in the early 1970s, and really through so many years there, he was a remarkable figure in Congress. Talk to us a little bit about serving with him and working with him. Ron was remarkable. He's an icon. I I really miss Ron a lot. Ron beat an incumbent, Jeffrey Cohelan, and he beat the incumbent in a Democratic primary running on an anti-war peace ticket. Not only was he against the Vietnam War, but he was for peace and justice. And Ron really did quite a job in our district. I mean, no one thought he was going to win, and he did. And he went on to Congress, and of course, he was on Spiro Agno's list and Richard Nixon's list. And, you know, he was a progressive African-American man who, who again, like Shirley Chisholm, believed that we had to have revolutionary change. And that's the only way we could have a country that stands for liberty and justice for all. So Ron, let me tell you, he uh, placed me as an intern in his office during uh, the Watergate era. And that's why I know (laughs) what we're going through now. Watergate is kindergarten compared to this effort that we're mounting against this lawless administration now. But Ron, as a young woman on public assistance with two little kids, Ron told me to come on to Washington, D.C. during that summer, and that was between my first year and second year of graduate school at the University of California at Berkeley. And so Ron taught me a lot. First of all, he taught me to be myself. And let me remind you, John, then in the day, there were very few black interns, there were very few women, and then I became his chief of staff, and I think there may be four, three black women on Capitol Hill who were chiefs of staffs, and maybe five people of color, African-Americans in total. I mean, it it was under 10, I know. So he was, he always said he was a feminist. And so he gave me that opportunity as a warrior, as a statesman, as a progressive member of Congress to head up his office. And that was really phenomenal. That was, that was groundbreaking. And for me, I was really honored and privileged, but I didn't really realize the impact of working on Capitol Hill for him as being one of the first, you know, and he was just an unbelievable person to work for. Ron ended up getting on the Intelligence Committee, a select committee on intelligence, and of course he was on the Armed Services Committee, 
and then became chair of the Armed Services Committee. Now, here he is constantly, and I think about him every day when we deal with the National Defense Authorization Bill, when we deal with the Defense Appropriations Bill, because Ron really understood that excessive defense spending was going to impact and hurt our national efforts and our domestic priorities. And he fought for a strong national defense, but not a wasteful military budget. So Ron would put forth the military budget based on his committee chairmanship's responsibilities. He'd include some of the amendments from Republicans and Democrats. And to this day, they say he was the fairest chairman they ever knew. And then he would vote against his own bill. He would speak about (laughs) he would speak about it in committee why he was voting no. And he'd take that bill to the floor and he would say, no, I'm not voting for it. Everyone else voted for it, but he didn't. And so Ron was a member of Congress who and an elected official who taught us that we could be principled and stick to our values and still be a great legislator and still get the job done. And so he taught me those skills on how you, you had to balance all of that. But bottom line is you had to had to vote your conscience and you had to vote what you believe the Constitution required and you had to vote for your constituents and for the country. And he knew good and well, that the, and to this day, that defense budget up going up, what, 740, 750 billion? It's, it's obscene, 150 billion in uh, waste, fraud, and abuse. It's, it's horrible. And so Ron, though, charted that course, and he became one of the first members of the Progressive Caucus. He chaired the Black Caucus. So being mentored by Ron Dellums, who led the effort to end apartheid in South Africa, he, he you know what, John? He introduced the South Africa sanctions bill, I think, 13 times. And he always said, Bob, he called me Bob, this is a marathon. He said, don't think you're going to do this overnight. It took him 13 times, and finally Congress overrode Ronald Reagan's veto and the, put the United States finally on the right side of history as it related to apartheid South Africa. So he taught me persistence. He said, you got to be here for the long haul. You know, he was a gentle human being. He was a kind person. Our families were very close. My kids grew up with his kids. And I tell you, it's it's hard being in this world without Ron Dellums to call and talk with or him calling me. I feel much the same way myself. I remember interviewing him so many times and I valued him as a great thinker and a, and a great legislative strategist. Let me ask you now, we've talked uh, about some of the people who were mentors and, and heroes for you and people who gave you a chance to step up. But here's the important thing. At a certain point, you stepped up and you got yourself elected to the legislature in California. And then when Ron Dellum stepped down, you ran for and won his congressional seat. I don't want to run through too much history too fast, though. Uh, It's important to kind of keep conscious of the fact that as a relatively new member of Congress, you took a stand that would... uh, literally live in history that was one of the epic dissents in our Congress. Talk to us about 9-11 that day and what came after. That was a terrible day for the, the country, the families, of, and the friends of those who were killed through these horrific attacks. And I'll always remember that day and remember those who, who we lost, John, and let me tell you, I was sitting in the Capitol that day, early that morning, and had to evacuate. Very few members of Congress were there. And I turned around and saw the smoke 
and that was the Pentagon burn, had to walk through rundown Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, I'm, I'm just kind of setting the stage in terms of how I was feeling. My dad was a—I'm a military brat. My dad, lieutenant colonel, retired in the Army, so he's a veteran. So I was raised—he fought in World War II. He fought in Korea. So I was raised as a military brat. Thirdly, Wanda Green was a flight attendant on Flight 93. Wanda was the cousin of my chief of staff, Sandre Swanson. And so all of these emotions, personally for me, were very, very deep and painful. At the same time, uncertain about what's taking place, like everyone, fearful, angry. It was it was a terrible time. And I knew that we'd have to respond and do something. We can't just let our national security be that exposed and vulnerable. But there's no way, three days after these horrific attacks, we would come forth with a resolution that was 60 words and it was so broad it just said the president any president can use force whenever he or she wants to as long as they can find a nexus to 9-11 well for the couple of days I went to the Democratic caucus and spoke I said we can't do this it's overly broad and several members said yeah you're right we can't but we've got to be unified with the president we can't see this in a partisan way I said no I'm not viewing this in a partisan manner This is a broad resolution. It's a blank check, and it's going to set the stage for perpetual war. And I tried to get the resolution narrowed, but no one would listen. So fast forward to the day of the memorial, which was a gloomy, rainy day. And I'm standing in back of the chambers, which we call the cloakroom, with Elijah Cummins. And the buses are getting ready to leave, going to the memorial at the National Cathedral. And I'm talking to Elijah, drinking, I'll never forget this, drinking a ginger ale. And Elijah's, we're going back and forth, back and forth about how I was going to vote. And one thing about Elijah, he said, whatever you do, you know, I'll support you. He said, you have to follow your conscience and the Constitution. And however you come to this decision, that's just know that I'll be there for you. And something told me at the last minute, because I wasn't going to go to the memorial, something changed my mind. I think after talking to Elijah, I just, you know, ran down the steps, and I believe I was the last person on the bus. So I went to the memorial and listened to these speeches, including George Bush's, and it was kind of like drumbeats to war speeches. They weren't really memorials in terms of the language and in terms of the message, but it was like they were angry kind of, naturally, uh, remarks. But then Reverend Nathan Baxter, who I think was the head of the National Cathedral, he did a eulogy, and in his comments, he said, as we act, and I'm paraphrasing this, but he said, as we act, let us not become the evil who we deplore. And it was at that moment, I've got to find the program because I wrote that down, and it was at that moment I was settled. I said, nope, no more struggling through this. You know it's going to be tough. Prepare for whatever the worst is because I knew the sentiment of the country and how horrible it was going to be. But there is no way I could vote for that. So I voted no, just went on back into the cloakroom, and some of my colleagues came back to tell me to change my vote, and they were doing it out of friendship because they knew what was to come. But I wouldn't do that because, for me, that would have been so um, inconsistent with what I believed and what I thought was the correct vote, not only for our national security, but for the overall effort to address uh, terrorism. 
And so after I voted no, all hell broke loose. CNN, you know, put it up there. I was walking back uh, to my office, and my dad called me, my Colonel Garvin A. Tut, and he said that was the right vote. He said, "Don't don't you send our troops in harm's way until you know what the deal is and what what the strategy is, and don't give any president that authority. You know, the military has to be consulted. You know, he walked through everything, and so he was the first one." Who, who told me that was the right vote. So I had to deal with all of the repercussions. And uh, as an example, I mean, I had death threats for days. Uh, it, it was horrible. I had several opponents. One went to New York and marched on Veterans Day with Rudy Giuliani in the parade, at the front of the parade, holding a sign of me smiling with the World Trade Towers burning in the background, and the sign said, Barbara Lee hates America. Now, this was like, I saw it on TV, and it was all of a sudden the death threats started coming, all the harassment, all of the nasty comments. And so I I think we have 60,000 emails, letters, and phone calls, which now are housed at Mills College. Because they were you know, probably 40 to 50 percent were pretty bad. But then when you look at the other 50 percent, people like Coretta Scott King, Bishop Tutu, Nelson Mandela, people sent me these wonderful letters from all around the world thanking me for that vote. And, and Coretta, I'll never forget this, at the Black Caucus prayer breakfast, Coretta Scott King came up to me and she hugged me. And she said, Martin would be proud of you. She said, Martin would be proud of you. That was the right vote. She said, if that had been him, he would have voted no. So the other side of the coin is that in spite of all of the the bad stuff happening, so many good people came forward and circled the wagons around me. And as a person of faith, of course, I feel that that armor was put on. There's a scripture in Ephesians about pull, put on the full armor of God. You know, when all hell breaks loose and you just stand <laughs> until it simmers down, you know, because you're going to be protected. And that's what happened to me. It's interesting that in relatively short order across America, you started to see those signs that said, Barbara Lee speaks for me. And you were reelected to the House. You remained in Congress. You became a close ally of President Obama, someone who represented the United States in dealings with the United Nations. All these remarkable things. But yet. You also remained steady. You never forgot that fight from the fall of 2001. And since then, you've led the fight for the better part of two decades to undo the AUMF. Well, you know, Ron, here we are 18 years later. <laughs> and, and Ron, I have to always remember Ron about talking about the, it's a marathon and being persistent because... I have tried to repeal this resolution and the Iraq resolution for years. Finally, we got it passed in the the repeal and in the defense authorization bill for the Iraq resolution. So they both are over in the Senate now. I, I wonder if they'll hold. We're trying to. I think most Democratic senators are with me on this. But, you know, John, this has been a mission. Mine. I'm going to get this done because Congress has been missing in action. Constituents should be outraged by their members of Congress just passing the buck and letting, and I'm not talking about Donald Trump, I'm talking about any president, President Obama, George Bush, any president that has used this authorization, you know, needs to uh, be criticized. 
we and, and I had the Congressional Research Service do a study, a survey. And this is a declassified report, but they found that it had been cited as the legal justification for military action 41 times in 18 countries, from Syria to Yemen to Libya to Somalia to Niger. Now, what the heck is that about? They couldn't even justify a nexus to 9-11. They're just stretching it like I said they were going to do. And um, they're using it even for Guantanamo and for domestic spying. And so we've got to repeal these two authorizations. And I hope those who are listening will weigh in with the Senate and let the Senate know this really isn't about left versus right. This is about fulfilling our constitutional duty on war making. And it's about making members of Congress, holding members of Congress accountable to what the Constitution requires of them. So, yeah, I'm going to keep doing this until it's done. This sort of brings us full circle uh, to where we began our conversation, because peace isn't the only issue that you focused on and that new members of Congress have uh, come in and started saying they want to do things the way Barbara Lee does. (laughs) It's almost as if the cavalry showed up. They did show up. (laughs) And uh, I mean, it's like they're here now. And these these young members have histories. They've got experience. And, you know, it is so I feel like now I'm not by myself. For so many years, it was pretty lonely. And for them, you don't even have to explain an issue to them. And outside one, for example, uh, my efforts to repeal the Hyde Amendment. And I'm co-chair of the Pro-Choice Caucus. And, of course, uh, we were able to ask, and Ayanna so graciously agreed to chair our task force on abortion access. And she is just working so hard with me on my Each Woman Act, which repeals the Hyde Amendment. And the Hyde Amendment was put into the appropriations bills probably 1976, 77, when I was a staffer to Ron Dellums. And what it said was that, for the most part, low-income women can't have access to uh, reproductive health care, which would include abortions, which is the constitutional right that all women have. But if you're poor and if you're low income, which and primarily they're women of color, you don't have that same accent. So when Hyde did this, I was devastated. Of course, Ron didn't vote for it. And I had no idea when, where or how I would be able to address it. And so Fast forward to being in Congress, of course, uh, these young women in the all above all coalition around the country, they're the heroes and sheroes in this because they worked so hard before I introduced this bill to build the public sentiment and also the political support for introducing it. And I'm going to tell you, John, our leadership at that point didn't want it done. I had to go to all of our mainstream pro-choice organizations and explain why we needed to do this. And uh, people, for the most part, it's it's like the holy grail, right? And I'm saying, but wait a minute, this discriminates against low-income women and women of color. So come on, finally we need to do this because the right wing is pushing so far to the right on women's reproductive health. We've got to set out framework to repeal the Hyde Amendment. So everyone finally agreed, you know, reluctantly, thought I'd have one or two co-sponsors. Well, I introduced it. We had 30 co-sponsors first time around, and now we're up to, I think, 169, 170, and we've got to get to 200, and then we can get to a hearing. But that's, again, another issue that I'm determined we're going to do, because women, whether they're poor or not, whether they're 
women of color or not, they deserve the same access to the full range of reproductive health care that all women should have. That's our constitutional right. And no politician should interfere in any woman's fundamental reproductive rights just because of how much they earn or where they work or how they're insured. So, yeah, so now we've got the squad um, and, and Ayanna leading the effort for the repeal. And finally, you know, help has arrived and the cavalry has arrived in a big way. But you're not going anyplace. I, I know you well enough to know you have many fights that you still want to pursue, many struggles that you want to remain engaged in. It really is part of who you are. Well, John, I'm an activist, first and foremost. Secondly, let me just share the story about my birth and why it's in my DNA. I have no option. Whatever platform I have, whatever I'm doing, I have to fight for for justice and for people who have been shut out. My mother, during her labor with me, she needed a C-section. And she was not admitted into the hospital. This was in El Paso because she was black. And it's a long story of how she finally got in. But they finally admitted her, left her on what she said a gurney in the hallway. And no one tended to her. And here she needed a C-section. She became unconscious. She became delirious. And some someone saw her. I think she said it was a nurse. And, you know, told the hospital medical staff that this woman was dying and they need to do something. Well, they pulled her in, and I don't believe it was uh, the delivery room. It was, I think, the emergency room. And they could not do a C-section. It was much too late. She was um, really dying because they had not done anything. And finally, they decided to deliver me using forceps. And I had a scar above my eye until a few years ago. And so she almost died. I almost didn't get into this world because of racism. I mean, it it took a lot for me to be born. (laughs) And so do you think I can do anything else but fight? No way. God, this is in honor of my mother, you know, who who went through that, who went through holy hell just having me and almost died. That is a remarkable story. (laughs) I, I don't know that there's any member of Congress who pulls so many of the pieces together. It's such an honor to talk with you, Barbara Lee. Well, John, I would love to, to join you again. And, uh, you know, I did write a book. If you ever, I don't know if you've read it or not. It's called Renegade for Peace and Justice, where I lay out some of the, these issues. And it was hard for me to write, but it was kind of like why I do what I do based on some personal experiences. And I really, until I started writing it, I really didn't realize the motivation this, in many ways, uh, wasn't a conscious motivation at all. But now as I wrote this book, I said, oh, now I see why. <laughs> so anyway, it, it's it's quite remarkable. I, yeah, I've been given a lot of opportunities, but believe you me, to whom much is given, much is expected. And uh, these young women who have joined the House of Representatives are awesome. They've come with a mission. They know what they're doing. I love them and I encourage them. And I'm very proud to uh, be their OG. It makes me very happy. Well, we're very happy to have you as our guest this week on Next Left, Barbara Lee. Thank you so much for joining us, Congresswoman. Thanks a million, John. See you soon. This episode of Next Left 
was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Devoy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you.